good to be here this morning. Good to see all of you. Yeah, a lot of my children, my grandchildren, are all here this morning. That's that's good. I'm glad of that. There've been a two or three more, but uh, my grandson Isaac is sick, so Deborah and Randall May were not able to make it. Tanner came along with us, their other son. You know, used to they'd all sit on here in the front. You remember that, Nancy? They'd all. When they were all here, they'd all sit on the front. Then one Sunday afternoon, I was preaching, made a gesture, and hit the communion tray, knocked it all over the front. I guess they all decided they better scoot back, I guess. <laughs> uh, some, some of the most amusing things ever happened have happened, you know, in, during church services. We don't play anything amusing, but when you have the ridiculous contrasted with the sacred, that, that's where you really get some humor <laughs> And, of course, our church services are very sacred. We should treat them very sacredly, even though sometimes interesting things happen. Well, our reading was from Second Peter chapter 2, and I appreciate you reading that, Jacob. What do we do, what do, we do with that? I mean, there's a million different directions you could go with that passage, couldn't you? <laughs> Draw your attention down to... Um, Verses 6 through 8. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day, with their unlawful deeds. This morning I'd like to talk about Lot. I'd like to talk about a just man. Not just a man, but a just man. One that was concerned about justice, what was right and what was fair. A man that was a very righteous man. Now usually when Lot is preached on, that's not what people focus on. As a matter of fact, sometimes the focus is so much to the mistake, the bad choice that he made and the results of it, that people overlook the fact that Lot is referred to as a just man and referred to as a righteous man who constantly vexed his righteous soul from day to day with the unlawful deeds of those that were round about him. Lot was a very good man. First time you read about Lot's in the book of Genesis, and a lot of passages in Genesis that deal with Lot, and we're not going to read all of them. We will read some of them. But Lot had an uncle, very famous, biblically famous. His name was Abraham. <laughs> Abraham's brother Haran, I don't know what happened to him, but Lot was his son. And Abraham and Haran's father's name was Terah. And Terah decided to leave the land of Ur and go into the land of Canaan. And he took Abraham and Lot along with him and all their substance, whatever it was. He got as far as to the town of Haran. Now, I don't know if the name of that town had anything to do with Terah's son, Haran, or not. I don't know, but it's the same, it's the same name. But nonetheless, uh, they stayed a while in Haran, and Terah dies there. Then God speaks to Abraham and tells him to get himself out from his company, his relatives and all, go down into the land of Canaan. And so Abraham went, and he took Lot along with him and all their substance. Now they were, they were herdsmen, they were cattle people. They had sheep, they had cattle, they had camels. They had all kinds of burrows. 
and uh, they uh, they spent their time traveling through the countryside. Reason they traveled is because our herds would eat the grass in one place, and they had to move on further other places to get grass. Didn't have fences up. People didn't claim properties near like they do today. You know, today we know certain land belongs to certain somebody and there's fences, divide all that up and we can tell where everything is. But that wasn't the case back in those days. They had these herds and they traveled from place to place. They had to keep moving because they'd eat all the grass up. And Haran had a, uh, I mean not Haran, but Lot. Lot had a lot of cattle and a lot of servants that took care of Abraham had a lot of cattle, a lot of sheep and things of that nature. And he had a lot of servants that went along with it. You know, I used to think, here's Abraham and his family going out traveling all by themselves out through this country here that they didn't even know anything about and with all their sheep and cattle and everything to take care of them. Hey, there was one time when Abraham got his servants together, armed them together for a battle, and he had more than a hundred servants traveling with him. We've got quite a caravan of people moving and traveling from place to place. And then Lot, I don't know how many servants he had, don't know how much cattle and all they had. But the Bible says Abraham was rich in gold and silver and cattle. He was a very rich man. And like I said, he certainly was not by himself. Certainly not wandering around. Now, when you come to Genesis chapter 13, we are going to read some of these passages in Genesis. that has to do with Lot. Chapter 13, uh, verse 1, we read here, Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot went with him. Then verses 5 through 12. Lot also, which went with Abraham, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their substance was, uh, was great, so that they could not dwell together. There were so many cattle that both the, the Lot and his uncle Abraham had so much that they couldn't hardly dwell together because they're just constantly in, in each other's way and I guess kind of fighting a little bit for grass and all. There was strife between the herdmen of Abraham, Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. Abraham said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between thy herdmen and my herdmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee. This Abraham telling Lot says, Our herdsmen are not getting along. We don't need to have this fighting and fussing here in the family. We're all kinfolks. We're related to one another. Let's separate. You go one way and I'll go the other. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt, take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord. It was like the garden of Eden. The comparison is made here to what this valley was like. And it was well watered. A lot of grass there for the cattle. says, he, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom.
but the men of Sodom were wicked sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So here it is that Lot makes a choice. He looks and he sees the, the plain, the r- r- river valley bottom of the Jordan River, and at that time it was a well-watered area, well-watered. It's not that case today. It's a very desolate place because God destroyed that place, you remember. But at that time, it was a beautiful place, a place that looked like ideal for cattle. I guess I keep bumping that thing. I hear it going thump, thump, but that's not my heart. My heart's just doing fine, just thumping along fine. But anyway, Lot made a choice. We all have choices in life to make sometimes, don't we? And Abraham gave Lot the choice, and and he chose a well-watered plain for his cattle and all like that. Well, God appears to Abraham and tells Abraham, he says, uh, you know, Abraham, he was his, uh, the friend of God. He says, shall I keep from Abraham what I'm fixing to do? You see, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there were others, a number of other cities in that valley, a lot of smaller ones. One real small one is referred to as Zoar. The word Zoar means little. That's what it means in the first place. I don't know what the names of those other towns in that valley were, but uh, it was a well-watered valley, and it had a number of towns and cities, a lot of people dwelling in that area. But they were very, very wicked. Very, very wicked. As a matter of fact, the men of the city were very deeply involved in homosexuality. And uh, God says, I'm going to destroy that place. And of course, Abraham talks with God about that. God agrees that if they could be ten righteous souls found in that valley, he wouldn't destroy it. Or at least in the sound of Sodom, he wouldn't destroy it. But they couldn't find ten righteous souls. There was was Lot and his wife, two daughters at least. I don't know the condition of the other daughters and sons-in-laws that he had there. But they weren't found ten righteous souls. God was going to destroy that place. He sent a couple of angels into that city to warn Lot about that. And the men of that city, when they heard these strange men come in, like I said, they were involved in homosexuality. Very, the Bible refers to it as vile affections and all. It said, send those men out that we may know them. They didn't know they were angels. Someone said, well, why couldn't they tell they were angels? All those wings and everything. Well, every time you read about angels in the Bible, they don't have wings uh, necessarily, you know. These men, they just appeared to be ordinary men, but they were not ordinary men. Because they struck the people outside that were trying to get to them, struck them blind. I mean, they were not ordinary men. They were angels is what they were. And they came to warn Lot and his family to get out of that place. They said, Abraham, Lot, you go get your relatives and all. Get them out of this place because God's going to destroy this place. Well, he talked to his sons-in-laws. And they thought that he was mock- mocking them. He said, you need to get out of this place. You've got to go destroy it. They, they just thought he was mocking them. Thought he was making some kind of funny with them of some kind. Trying to get ridiculous or something like that. Like sometimes, like father-in-laws get. <laughs> I hate to say that, but that's true sometimes maybe, you know. And sometimes father-in-laws might meddle in their children's business. I don't know, you know. But Lot was told to do this. You go talk to your, your daughters and your sons-in-laws. Get them out of this place. Well, none of them would get out. And they, they tarried getting out of that place. The angels told them, said, get out of this place. We can't destroy it until you get out. And they were lingering around, you know. 
And so God, uh, the angels took him by the hand, a lot, and his wife and his two daughters that were still at home, took them by the hand and set them outside of the city. And God rained down fire and brimstone on that place and destroyed it. And you remember the story. God told him, don't turn around and look back. Lot's wife couldn't resist the temptation. Turned around and looked back. Someone said she was thinking about her, she was thinking about her daughters and her sons-in-law still back in that city. Well, that's assumption. You got to be careful about tying assumptions in with what the Bible says. She could have just turned around to see what was going on back there. I would suspect she's good. You know, turn around to see about what's happening to her daughter's son. But that's an assumption. I don't know. But we do know she turned around. God told her not to. She's turned into a pillar of salt. And God destroyed that place. Everything but this little city of Zoar. God told Lot, said, you get up in the mountains. Get away from this. I'm going to destroy this whole valley. And Lot said, oh, no. So some evil might happen to me up in the mountains up there, you know. Now, when they, Lot and Abraham parted one from another, Abraham went up into the mountain area well, Lot went down into well-watered plains down there, and he wasn't, you know, he was kind of out of the habit of dwelling, fiddling around the mountain. So, so it was that God said, I'll save this little city of Zoar. You can go into this little city of Zoar. And so you find the story of Lot. Lost his wife, lost his other daughters, son-in-laws. He has two daughters. And uh, kind, of a, kind of a tragic tale, isn't it? Now, the Bible says in Romans 15, verse 4, Whatsoever things are written before time were written for our learning that we through patience and the comforts might have hope. Well, what can we learn then from this story? You know, these old, these old Testament stories and all that were written, they were written partially for the people that lived then, but mainly for you and I that live today. You know, in the book, I think it's in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that, the prophecies that were made in the olden times concerning Jesus Christ and Christianity, those prophets didn't even know what they were prophesying. It was not even unto themselves that these things were given. It was for us, for you and I later on, to see the prophecies and how they were fulfilled. The Old Testament is not law for us today. And anyone that goes back to the Old Testament tries to pick out one law. The Bible says you're debtor to keep the whole thing. So we do not go back to the Old Testament to find law. When we do, we transgress the teachings of God to do that. Now, there's some things, laws and teachings in the Old Testament that were retaught in the New Testament. That's a different matter, you see. And there's a lot of things in the Old Testament, the natural nature of man and things of that nature, just as true today as they ever were. As far as law, we don't. But there, there's a lot of interesting stories that are examples to you and I. What is it that we can learn from this story? <laughs> Well, the two most obvious points, if you're reading the Bible, were not that obvious to me. Until I began studying a little more about Lot. Might turn to uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. It says, Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example or example unto those after that should live ungodly. Now, this is one reason that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot is preserved for you and I today. To warn you and I about ungodliness. Ungodliness is behaving in ways that God would not behave. It's doing mean things, bad things, wicked things. An ungodly person is a person that's involved in sin and things of this nature. The Bible gives a lot of warning about that. Are you involved in any kind of ungodliness? I hope you're not. 
the Bible does, does a lot of teaching about ungodliness. Uh, Romans 8, 1 verse 18, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Jude verse 15 talks about ungodly sinners doing ungodly deeds, ungodly committed. Jude verse 18 refers to ungodly lust. And the particular sin of this area that was perhaps uh, more striking than any of the others, worse than any of the others, of course any kind of sin is bad, was homosexuality. You know, God does not approve of that. <clears throat> I know there's people trying to argue against that and say the Bible doesn't really teach anything about that. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We want to read just a little bit. Uh, let's read uh, Let's read verses 24 through 27. We won't read all of this in Romans 1. It talks about all different kinds of sins. And it names a lot of them. We'll begin verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. Now he's talking about the Gentiles. That that weren't following God, involved in all kinds of sin and all, and all these sins are mentioned here. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. And that's what the Gentiles did. Rather than worshipping the Creator, worshipped the things God created, like the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, fire, you know, mountains, rivers, uh, bears and everything else. They, they worshipped everything God created except God, the Creator Himself. And for this cause gave, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one towards another. Men with men working that which is unseemingly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. The Bible also referring in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, refers to effeminate and refers to abusers of themselves of mankind. Now, you know, people, people trying to justify this, saying, well, these are some people are just different than others and have these natural desires, you know. Sometimes women for women and men for men. Having a desire for something and doing it is something different. Nearly all men have desire for women. I mean, uh, God made them that way, but they don't go out and just take any woman that comes along. The one they're married to is what, they, what we believe you ought to do. But those that, that campaign for homosexuality are not only campaigning because they have a desire for that, but because they're actively involved in it. That's called fornication. Anytime you're not married in a situation like that, it's called fornication. Someone said, Jerry, you sound kind of mean. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Preaching through the years, I've emphasized, tried to push my points, but don't take that as me being angry uh, or being angry and mad, you know. I, I'll be honest with you, I don't understand that kind of desire. I have no understanding of that at all. <clears throat> but uh, evidently there's problems. But that's a sin that can be forgiven, just like any other sin can be forgiven. And people can make changes in sins and all that they're involved in. It's a little harder for some people than others. But this was a particular sin and referred to as vile affections that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were involved in. So one reason this story is given is to warn you and I against ungodliness. Now there's another reason that's given in the book of Jude. A 
about Lot, Sodom and, about Sodom and Gomorrah here as to why this story is told. And book of Jude in verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. This story is not only told to warn against ungodliness, but also told to warn against the results of it, of what God is going to do, not only about homosexuality, but any other kind of sin. There is destruction, and here it refers to eternal fire is the final result of it. I know we like to talk about heaven and things that are very positive, things that make us feel good and all. But you know, the Bible does a lot of talking about hell, about the fires of hell. And it's, it's not a place you would like to go. Hebrews 10, verse 30 and 31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Again, I will repay, saith the Lord. Matthew 25, verse 41 says, The righteous will go into life eternal, but the wicked will go into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not prepared for man, mankind initially at all. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But when you and I get involved in the kind of things that the wicked of this world get involved in, the devil wants us to get involved with, and we don't repent of that and straighten it out, the future is very plain in the Bible. Bible very plain about hell, about the fires of hell. He, Matthew 10, verse 28 said, Don't fear those that can destroy the body, but not the soul, but rather fear him that can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, your body, you know what your physical body is. A soul is that person, that individual, the character that lives within that body. And God can destroy both soul and body in hell, and he will with some. Luke 16, 22 through 24 tells about a rich man that died. And in hell, the Bible says he lifted up his eyes. He saw Abraham afar off and, and Lazarus in his bosom. said, send Abraham over here, or send Lazarus over here. That he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormented in these flames. The Bible teaches that the wrath of God is very strong, going to be awful against those that sin and don't straighten their lives out. God is a very merciful God. You repent of your ways. You change your ways. God can be forgiving. One of the worst men in the Old Testament that you read about, his name was Manassas, led the country into deep idolatry and all kinds of wicked things. Did you know the man repented before he died and came back and destroyed a lot of that idols and things that he set up? And because of that, God didn't destroy Israel during his time because of the repentance he did. It doesn't make any difference how badly you are in sin. You can get your life straightened out if you just say, make up your mind to do it, you know. Now, you won't conquer sin overnight. That doesn't happen overnight, usually. You've been involved in sin a while, it'll take a while. If you haven't been involved in sin very long, you may straighten it out pretty quick. But that's another reason this story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot is told is not only to warn us against ungodliness, but to warn us also of the results of that. The destruction of God, the condemnation of God, and final destruction on that. Now then, what about some of the other things that we can learn from this story? These are some of you probably heard covered a little more often. They were the ones that first came to my mind. Priorities determine our choices. 
Now, Lot made a choice to go into the well-watered valley of Jordan there. Why did he do that? He did that because of his cattle. He was a herdsman. He saw that wonderful grass down for his cattle to, to eat not only grass down there, but it was well-watered area. And there would not only be grass now, but grass tomorrow and grass the next day and grass the next day. And plenty of grass in the late fall that he could bale that stuff and use it next year. I don't know how they preserved that hay. I'm sure they didn't bale it as you and I think about baling hay, you know. I mean, it was the ideal thing for cattle. But you know what the problem was? The immorality in that area, the evilness in that area, and the people of that area. His priorities were out of place. You know, there have been many a good man that's made a bad choice or two that's presented problems to him. Sometimes you don't even know the results of choices. Sometimes the choices in themselves are not sinful and evil. It was not sinful for him to choose to go into go into uh, the valley, the Jordan Valley, but the reason he did, that was a different matter. Had his priorities mixed up. How are your priorities? Someone said, what in the world's priorities mean? It means what things are most important to you. Now the Bible says in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So you ought to be concerned about the kingdom of God, that's the church, and God's righteousness that's His commandments and teachings and forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. That should be the first thing you and I should seek. Lot was not seeking this, first of all. He was seeking something that's good for his cattle and good for his business. And he kind of overlooked some of the other influences and all that he finally ended up uh, in, the, in the middle of. <clears throat> you know, the Bible says that... Uh, Matthew 6 and verse 26, What's a man profit to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Some people think, well, your job and your business, that's, that's what is very, very important. Well, it is important, but it's not most important. The kingdom of God and His righteousness are most important. And when you let your business decisions get ahead of your, the spiritual results of those things, you're headed for trouble. You need, to be, you need to be a hard-working individual, you know, work hard at the job you've got. But you think about all of the other consequences that, come, that can come around about your job also. The Bible also says in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your soul, your heart, and your mind. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So we should put a love for God above any other love that we have. And then we should love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And we should seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We need to keep our priorities straightened out. And even when it comes to the teaching commandments of God, there's a difference in them. You know, the Bible, Jesus got on the Pharisees and scribes, Matthew 23 and verse 23. He said, they omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. There are some teachings, commandments of God that are weightier or that are more important than others. And this was true with the Israelites. Judgment, mercy, and faith was more important than keeping the small, dotting the small I's and crossing the small T's. Now, he said these you ought to have done and not to leave the other undone. But we need to keep first things first in our lives, keep our priorities right. 
evidently Lot's priorities were a little out of focus. And, it, and it, our priorities are what determines our choices. Now, if you've got more than one responsibility, you're going to have conflicts of responsibility sometimes. If you have a job and you're a father or a mother, there's two different responsibilities. They're going to conflict sometimes, you know. If you have a job and you're involved in the church, you've got responsibility there, responsibility there, those things are going to conflict. Sometimes that's natural. But when, how you decide on those conflicts, what you decide on those conflicts, how you decide where to go will depend upon what's most important to you. So priorities are very, very important because they affect the choices that we make in life. Then another thing that we can learn from this is those choices have consequences. You know, everything we do, the Bible says, Galatians 6, verse 7 through 9, says, uh, He that soweth to us. I might have quoted that a million times. Y'all ever get that way? You ever get that way, Yancey? <laughs> Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Sow and reap. That's not sow, S-E-W, like women sow garments and things. It's sowing like planting. Whatever you plant is what you're going to, what you're going to harvest. That's what he means by reaping, harvest. If, you're going to, if you plant corn, you're going to get corn when it, when it uh, matures. That is, if, you, if, if the season is right and everything is right, you know. If you, but one thing for sure, if you plant corn, you're not going to get rice. If you get rice, there was some rice planted. <laughs> Why? Well, that's natural. We reap what we sow. The same thing is true as far as your spiritual life is concerned. If you sow to the satisfaction of the physical flesh, that's what you're going to reap the results of. If you sow to spiritual things in your life, that's what you're going to reap the results of. God's not mocked. You're not going to fool God. You're not going to get the best of God. Whatever you sow, that you're going to reap. So choices make decisions. So it's very important that you have the right kind of priorities and choices. You have choices about the things you say, don't you? You have a choice about the words and all that come out of your mouth. Now the Bible says, 1 Peter 3, verse 10, He that would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from the evil and his lips that says, speak no guile. See, there's consequences to what you say. If you want happiness and joy in life, keep a control on that tongue so that you don't say things you shouldn't say and upset people and people get upset at you and then you try to justify yourself and they try to justify themselves and you've got a conflict going. And then you get your feelings out on the edge of your shoulders and get offended over every little thing that comes up or sometimes just one or two little things that come up. You get offended when you're all sensitive about things like that. We have choices about the things we say. I was preaching a sermon on the, on the tongue one time. I was staying with Brother Sam McBride in Arcoma. Do you know where Arcoma is? It's a southwestern suburb of Fort Smith. 
and it's in Oklahoma, right across the line. I was holding a meeting there, and when I got through with the sermon, got spent the night with Brother McBride, and we standing around that pot-bellied stove that he had in there. It was in February and all. He said, you know, it's an interesting thing about the tongue. God put it in a box. All you have to do is keep the lid closed. <laughs> I mentioned that to Dr. Tracewell. He was area nose and throat specialist. We went to him one time. He was in Henrietta, Oklahoma. And he said, yes, and the strongest muscle you've got in the body is that jaw muscle. God put the strongest muscle there to keep that lid closed. <laughs> so sometimes if you feel offended or something, keep your mouth shut. Why? If you want to love life and see good days, refrain your tongue from evil and your lips to speak no guile, and you can go a step further back than that. Matthew 12, verse 34. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. You have a choice about things you think about. Someone said, you can't help what you think about. You sure can. Most of us can't help what we think about because we don't practice th controlling what we think about. But if you practice what you think about, thinking about good things, like Philippians 4 verse 8, thinking good things and positive things and things of love and things of peace and getting along with one, if you think this way, then that's what will come out of your tongue. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Now, you can't help thoughts that come in your mind, but you can help if they stay there. It's like they said, you know, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And that's the same way with thoughts. You can't help some thoughts that come in your mind, but they don't have to stay there. You don't have to harbor those thoughts and let them stay there. You have a choice about the way you think. Like I said, we don't control our thoughts because we don't practice doing that. How many of you do that? Really practice about the way, controlling what you think about. It's just like anything else. If you shot a basketball around once a week, or you shot it around every day, there'd be a world of difference, wouldn't it? When I was young, going to school, you know, I shot the basketball a lot. Shot, 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 shot. I got to where I could rip that net about as far out as you could get the ball up if nobody was near me. <laughs> Had a hand in my face and probably missed the goal altogether. That comes about by practice. Any of y'all ever, any of y'all never played much basketball? Take a basketball and get out on court. See if you can put that ball in the net. You can watch on television and see the guys that can just rip that net. You want, how in the world can they do that? They practice, they practice, they work at it, they work at it, they work at it. The same thing is true with the thoughts that are in your mind. You have to work at it. You have to practice it. Think about an eraser that erases a marker board. Y'all don't have marker boards anymore. You do. But think about that. And just erase those thoughts out of your mind. Think about something else. Practice controlling what you think about. Then it'll come easier for you to do. For you have a choice about what you think about. And from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And an uncontrolled tongue will destroy joy and happiness in life. So, Lot made some, had, had priorities mixed up. Those priorities caused him to make choices. And his choices had consequences. And the consequences were what? We're probably pretty well familiar with that. He was in the Jordan Valley, and then he pitched his tent toward Sodom. His tent and his men, his community, whatever you call it, moved him a little closer to the town of Sodom. Initially, he didn't go into Sodom, but there you could buy anything you wanted to buy, a good shopping place and stuff like that. And you get close enough, before you know it, 
before you know it, Lot's living in the city of Sodom with all the immorality and all around about him. Didn't get the best of Lot. He vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. He never did give in to that. He never did approve of that. He never did get to where it didn't just turn him inside out. See that immorality there. But it didn't get out of the place. Once he got in there, and his kids had moved in there, and they had associations with people, and I don't know if they were involved in homosexuality, but once they got in there, it was hard for him to get out. He's a father. He has responsibility. His daughters are in there. And his wife is there. If he gets up and moves out, who's he going to have to leave and leave his responsibilities? You see, sometimes the consequences of the choices we make are very, very bad, and we can't see them ahead of time, especially if we don't have our priorities right. You young boys, I see some young boys here. I see some grandsons and others. They're not married yet. Boys, you think about the girl you marry. Young ladies, we got young ladies that are here too. You think about the boy you marry. She may be a beautiful girl. You just thrill every time you think about how beautiful she is, you know. I feel that way about my wife, you know. But what kind of a wife will she make? Is she a Christian? How will she affect your Christianity? What kind of a mother will she make for your children? What kind of a father will he make for your children? These choices that you make will have consequences. And you may, you may like the choice to begin with, but you may not like the consequences that come along. But there are consequences to our choices. And so Lot got into, made, he made a, the priorities were wrong. He made a wrong choice. And he, he lost most of his family because of it. Don't pitch your tent towards Sodom. Stay away from evil, bad influences as much as you possibly can. Uh, Romans 12, verse 9, Abhor that which is evil. Lot continued to do that, but evidently his daughters and son-in-laws did not. 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. Evidently Lot did that, but his daughters and his son-in-laws didn't, did they? Abstain from the appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. Evil communications corrupt good manners. It didn't corrupt Lot. He was strong, but it corrupted his two daughters and his sons-in-laws, didn't it? You know, the Bible says we should train up a child the way he should go, and when he becomes old, he'll not depart from it. And the influences that we subject our children to going to have an influence on me and affect the way we train them and raise them up. I had an uncle. He lived in the west part of the Dallas area, but towards Fort Worth, but in the west part of the Dallas area. It was a rough area of town. I don't know how it is now, but it was back then. Ma, Ma Parker, outlaw, lady outlaw, came from that area. There's a lot of drugs and things in that area. And the oldest boy got involved in drugs. And another boy, when he was 13 years old, ended up stealing a car, and they got as far as Arizona before they got caught. Spent five years in reform school in El Reno, Oklahoma. Was out about a year and a half, put back in Huntsville in a federal penitentiary, and died there. The influence of that. Now, that might have happened anyway. Uncle Carl's oldest boy, I don't know. 
his youngest boy saw what happened to older brother, and he was strong against that. Never did get involved in that kind of stuff. My Uncle Carl didn't move his kids out of that area. Well, there's other bad areas I know. All the whys and wherefores, I don't know. And I certainly wasn't in a position to make that choice. You know, but our choices have consequences. And some of those consequences we don't like. So we need to be careful about our choices. Like I said, you can't avoid all bad consequences of choices because you, you can't always see ahead. You don't always know everything, you know. And you can't know everything. But it helps when we try to keep our priorities straight and make those right kind of choices. Don't give in to evil influences. 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Don't love the world and the things of the world. James 4, verse 4 says, If you... If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. John 17, 15, and 16 is an interesting passage. This is a prayer of Jesus for his apostles. He says, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil of the world. Now, you and I, we live in the world, but the world doesn't need to get into us. You know, it's good for a boat to be on the water, but it's not good when the water gets in the boat. You and I live in a world where we can't completely avoid all contact with any kind of evil influence and all, but we need to keep ourselves unspotted from the world as much as we possibly can. Matthew 6, verse 13, Jesus taught his apostles to pray that they not be led into temptation, but to be delivered from evil. And the passage we read, or Jacob read, 2 Peter 2 and verse 9, God knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. He knows how to do that. We should avoid as much as we possibly can. In the book of Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 8, talking about an immoral woman, come not nigh her door. Stay away from, the, from that kind of a girl. Now then, the last point we want to make is simply this. And it's something you might not realize from the story of Lot, which I didn't realize either until I really got to read and study about. God is a God of second chances. Did you know that? God is a God of second chances. Lot made a bad choice, bad consequences, lost his daughters and sons-in-laws, that, the daughters that were married and sons-in-laws, lost his wife, got out with just himself and his two daughters. But God gave him a second chance. He had a couple of grandchildren. One's name was Moab, the other was Ben Ami. A-M-M-I, however you want to pronounce that. He was the father of the Ammonites. And Moab was the father of the Moabites. He had a second family that came along. And how was this second family? Someone said, oh, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and Gergesites and all those were evil and wicked. Well, eventually the Israelites were too, eventually. But I want to call your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. Now, we've skipped, we're skipping forward about 500 years after these two boys were born to Lot. About 500 years. God, through Moses, led the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. They were led around on the east side of the Jordan River, and God says, I'm going to drive the inhabitants of this land out. 
because of their evil and their wickedness. So I'm not giving you the land because of your righteousness, because you're stiff-necked people, but I'm driving them out because of their wickedness. And he tells the Israelites, if you turn to this kind of wickedness, I'll drive you out. The land will vomit you out just like it's vomiting these inhabitants out. Now, before they went in, he says, but don't bother the Moabites and the Ammonites, for they're your brethren. Now, why do you say this? It's very obvious. The Ammonites and the Moabites were not involved in all the evil that most of the peoples down in that Canaan area were involved in. 500 years later, still the Moabites and the Ammonites, descendants of Lot, were pretty good people. And there was a lady that came from the Moabites. Her name was Ruth. Wonderful young lady. Whole book written about her. You know, he had a second chance. God is a God of second chances. If you find found your life all messed up and in a big mess, it can be straightened out. You can't undo all the consequences of the past. I'm sure Lot never forgot about his wife and those other daughters and sons-in-laws. I'm sure he never forgot about it. Probably had some remorse all his life about the choice that he made down there, but he had a second chance. And he seemed to do a pretty good job with a second chance, as far as we can tell. As long as you're alive, you've got a second, third, or fourth chance to get your life straightened out. And I would plead with you to try to do something about that. Get your life straightened out as best you possibly can. You're still alive. God wants you to get your life straightened out. He gave his son to die for you. He shed his blood on the cross. A terrible, agonizing death. He suffered for you and me. You know why? Because when we got our lives messed up, that didn't surprise God. It didn't make him happy. It didn't surprise him. He knew the kind of creature he was creating when he created you and I. He knew that. He knew we wouldn't keep our minds like they ought to be and our tongues like they ought to be all the time and our, wouldn't make the right choices all the time. He knew that. He knew we wouldn't keep our priorities straightened out. You think God was shocked when Adam and Eve disobeyed him in the Garden of Eden? God was not shocked. God knew what Adam and Eve was going to do. God knows what you and I are going to do when we do things that are wrong too. God knows that. Someone said, well, why did he create us knowing that we would end up making bad choices and sending things like that. Well, because he wanted to create a creature that would be a creature of choice that would worship him out of their own free will. And when they messed up, he had an alternate plan. He had another plan. Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Before God ever formed the earth and put man on it, he had this plan for his son to die for man. He knew the kind of creature he was creating when he created you and I. He knew that. And he had this plan whereby we could remove our sins, forgive our sins, and live eternally. Because God wants us to live eternally. God wants you to live eternally. God loves you. And he loves me. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we'd like to encourage you to do that. We're going to sing an invitation song. Encourage you to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. And if you're a child of God already and you messed up and you need the prayers of the church, 
we'll be glad to pray with you and for you. But more important than that, you need to change your life. But if you need the prayers of the church, we'll be glad to pray for you, assist you in whatever way we can. Will you come while we stand to sing the invitation song?